Scots Whiskey Explorers, a podcast where we discuss everything there is to discuss about whiskey. I'm Peter, and I'll be joined by Stuart in each episode, where we will ask the questions and seek out the answers that are prompted by a love of whiskey. If you want to know more about how we came to be making this podcast, please have a listen to the Season 1 trailer. In Season 1, we'll be focusing on the fundamentals of single malt Scots whisky production. Everything from barley to fermentation to maturation will be examined and explored in exhaustive detail. If you'd like to know more about Scots Whisky Explorers, or if you'd like to get in touch, leave comments or suggestions, please go to www.scotswhiskeyexplorers.com and you can find us on Twitter at WhiskeyScots. Thank you for listening to Scots Whisky Explorers. We hope you enjoy it. Now, please sit back, relax, pour yourself a jam, and enjoy our conversation about maturation. Hey Stuart, how are you doing? Hey Peter, good to see you. Yeah, still still buzzing after our small conversation about what a cask looks like, what it's made up of. And uh, my head's swirling a wee bit just having, just having to hold on to all of that information. You know, I was, I was thinking there, if only we were on YouTube, this would be so much easier because we just go, there's a cask. And then link to a YouTube video of a Cooper. And that'd be us. We'd be out of here. We'd be in the bar yeah. by now. Yeah, well, what, what makes you think I'm not in the bar? <laughs> I never doubted you. But we, we would try to be disciplined, of course. And you want to get some some reward for having put in a fair, a fair wee bit of elbow grease and thinking through the process. Although, as we're probably, people are probably tired of hearing from us. It's a wee bit more complicated than it looks at first sight, isn't it? Um, and as we, t- I think you'd mentioned when we started out, we said, "Oh, there's quite a lot of variables." But now I think we're finding variables within variables, which certainly gets my head spinning. Yeah. Um, but that, that we've set out in this path, so that that's what I suppose that's our our task, that's our job to try and make some sense of this have a conversation with one another, help us make sense of it. Yeah. And, you know, if, if folk are prepared to listen, then all the, all the better. And hopefully we can en- enlighten enlighten them a wee bit further about just what goes into the a cask and what's going on in, in that cask. Hopefully we'll catch on to some of that in this, this episode. Yeah, and with, with no regard to our own safety, we shall put our shoulder to the wheel and... Uh, <laughs> dive in so um we would in the previous episode we'd, we we were right in the we we're right in the into the wood in with the medullary rays and the tannins and the compounds but i think it's worthwhile having a wee having a wee probe and chat about the construction of the cask you know what maybe even maybe even before the cooper you know like the timber's been felled the coopers will take in the, the 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 lumber, the timber, and then they'll be they'll be looking after it. They'll be cutting it so they're they'll be making sure that they're getting the right cut so that the staves are the right length and it's the right grain and it's the right kind of portion of the tree that they're taking. And then they they'll be doing all that drying and the seasoning to make sure that the the wood is in the proper condition that it, that it can be coopered. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. It's, like, that's certainly the work of of that goes on in a cooperage is looking after the wood before 
it comes to be manufactured into a cast before mm-hmm. it's, it's it's cut to appropriate stave lengths and, and, and the cask becomes built. Should we talk a wee bit about that waiting period then? Because, well, maybe is there a waiting period? If, if you're air drying, certainly, because you might be looking at air drying timber being set in the atmosphere, albeit covered up. It wouldn't, you wouldn't, it wouldn't get direct rained on. It would be in a kind of covered warehouse. Oh, you, you think something different? I don't want to say that that's wrong because, I, I mean, how, how much do I know about it? Right? I'm just yeah. reading, reading a couple of books. But there was a thing I, I read. There was a cooper who was talking about wine barrels being dried so wood be, that's being used for wine barrels might be dried for 24 to 36 months but for bourbon barrels it might be up from 36 to 48 months so but ah. he, then went, he then went on to say that he was talking about this, this particular Missouri grown oak and it was he was talking about it being dried for 48 months out getting covered in the pollen and the airborne bacteria and the mould was growing on it, and the staves were getting soaked with the rain, and he even said the tannins were getting washed out. Now, I don't know. Is that, is he, is he, uh, be, is he being a little bit kind of, maybe well, I suppose elaborating you know, a bit too you much? Can see, uh, I suppose you can see an almost artisanal element to that, but before the event of kiln drying, there wouldn't be any other option but to leave wood out and I think well I mean, I would think again then about I was imagining you know a kind of a wallless warehouse <coughs> with a roof of some sort but no the wood would be out there exposed to the elements yeah there's a there's a logic in what you're saying because if you just leave it out in all weathers it's going to eventually rot isn't it if it's going to be getting mm. soaked and soaked and then partially dried out and soaked some more yeah I think that, that doesn't sound like drying and seasoning the wood to me if it's getting soaked the whole time <laughs> <laughs> well maybe maybe uh maybe there's a tour to be done of of cooperages to see <laughs> how one cooper one cooperage compares to another but it's not i wouldn't imagine you would be putting your wood in the eye of the storm of the weather mm-hmm. but at the same time you'd still want a bit of um of interaction with the elements so why, why else would that air drying have any qualities at all and I like yourself I too had read that that certainly rain might wash out wash through some of the tannins so your your wood's out there exposed to the elements it's going to reduce the tannin element and and some of the phenolics but also like you're saying all of those other microorganisms that are around there's a suggestion that the fungi that would grow in the wood then release enzymes that begin to break down the tannin in the cellulose. There's already work being done in the atmosphere that by virtue of the wood lying around for two or three years, that those would bring good qualities to the, the ma- ma- good maturing qualities to the wood that's going to be made into the cast. See, that's, that's brilliant. I think that's brilliant. I'd never thought of that playing a part in Okay, so you might argue how much of a part does it really play, but still, it's going to play a part of the character of the wood and how that, how what it's bringing to to the to its interactions with the with the spirit. Yeah, 
and it, I mean, and by comparison, then what I was picking up is that kiln drying, which might be, which is obviously just the application of heat mm-hmm. for a much shorter period, you know, eighteen to forty hours. But that process is more likely to increase the tannin rather than the gentrifying process of being hanging out in the atmosphere for a wee while. And of course, nothing is ever straightforward. So you get a, a third way of a combination of that, of air drying for a period, then kiln drying. So he's trying to get, I think off the top of my head, about 18% moisture content. Right. Uh, but that the combination then of having been out in the air and then the acceleration of, of kiln drying, that again, but that would reintroduce phenol, phenolic content and, and the aldehydes, you know, where you were going to get the vanillins more to the, the fore. So again, you know, we're, we're even even within two apparently contrasting processes there, by putting the two of them together, we're getting we're getting back to that, you know, variables within variables again. That is Again, yeah, like you say, there's just you you take a left corner, you turn left at the corner, and then you're greeted with a whole another junction of different decisions and, and and ways that the story could play out in terms of how the wood is being enacted upon and how it's reacting to its environment and what that then does within the structure of the wood. I mean, that's quite something. You were mentioning about the the air drying and then the or the the kilning which i would take to mean you're putting the you're putting the wood in in a kiln right so you're mm. effectively speeding up that drying process you're taking charge of it and i was in my mind that from what i'd read that was a kind of if we could be so crude to say that's the kind of american standard way of doing it but then in in spain i was reading that both the european and the US oak that they use over there, it's all air dried. And especially the, the the stuff that's grown there is air dried at the location where it was felled. So it's air dried for about nine months. Um, and the moisture's brought down to about 20%. This is in the Spanish kind of model of, of, of doing this. And then it's shipped to the sherry regions, which are naturally a bit warmer, and there's more air drying or seasoning going on for another six to nine months until the moisture is about 14 to 16 percent so a little bit of a kind of varied process in spain compared with what might happen in the us with the the coopers over there yeah and i suppose when you're putting all that together we're not we're at a little bit of a disadvantage because there's no way we could pick up a drum and go (laughs) you know Air dried for uh, two years in the Ozarks. <laughs> at the last oh. tasting, at the last tasting, I was like, I said, "Yeah, this this <laughs> this is tasting like single figures old to me." And it turns out it was like some like twenty three year old. <laughs> well, you know, trust nothing that comes out of my mouth. But well, that, we're at that at a disadvantage. But there are you know, there've been people around who. have who might profess to to understand that those that those level of inputs and the possible outputs, and mm-hmm. I'm certainly you know in the kind of early whiskey boom of the of the noughties, the certainly longer with us, Jim Swan was mentioned regularly as a bit of a whiskey 
distilling guru, a guy to go to in terms of consulting about how you would like to develop and make your whiskey. And I certainly, from memory, I'm pretty sure he visited Kilcolman on at least two occasions to talk yeah. them through the process. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, it doesn't really count, does it? Visiting, it doesn't matter. He, he was heavily well, I think involved. His name, I think his name was in the bottle. Ah, Early ah, days, ah, I think his name was on the yeah. bottle. And you know, I, I'd imagined him as being quite a kind of, you know, guru guy who just found his way around. And I, I, hadn't, I hadn't really put much thought into how does he know this? It's just like people kept telling you that Jim Swan knows a lot. Um, but he, he was, you know, he was properly involved in research papers and stuff like that. And certainly he was a very strong advocate of like the best wood came from slow growth. So you were looking for that regular development of, of, of the tree growing. And, and even, I think the paper published as early as 1980 and talking about slow growth. But then a wee bit later on in 1996, it wasn't him alone, there were some other people around. But he talks about really the compounds that have the, the most compounds with any positive effect on the spirit all come from air, air-dried oak. That's Jim Swan says that. He he must know. Or he, he must have known. He's clearly a very knowledgeable uh, man at the time and certainly you know, he was involved in the setting up of a, a whole bundle of new uh, distilleries around the, kind of early, the early uh, 2000s. Yeah. So he clearly put a lot of time and thought and effort into working that out and probably were we able to ask he would be able to tell us what what those inputs were that would give us the outputs. Hmm. Once it's been dried and it's seasoned and it's ready to be fashioned by the cooper, I think the first thing would be they have to cut the staves. So hmm. I was I was watching a thing where there was um, they were doing that and they were shaping the staves. And to get that barrel shape, the staves have to be a particular shape. So they've got beveled edges, angled edges, one side of the stave is convex, the other side of the stave is concave, um, and it's wider in the middle. If you're, if you, you know, picture the stave standing on its tip, it would be you would see that it's fatter in the middle. And without that, you're not going to be able to fashion it into into your, your barrel shape. There was a, a Cooper I was watching, and he, he was talking about right. So you you can't have any knots in it. You were talking about knots from the Scottish oak and the the previous episode and there's uh, no sapwood which is that really soft um young growth they're looking yep. for the, the real heartwood and he this guy says this is better grade oak than furniture this is furniture grade oak isn't as good as this <laughs> i was like wow you're we're, we're really taking care of that whiskey by putting it somewhere nice aren't we <laughs> it's uh it's, it's reclining within the confines of a, of a cask that's fashioned from wood that's better than your furniture. So then getting the staves and gathering, gathering, gathering them together so that you're kind of creating a, a, a circular kind of construct at one end um, and fas- fastening it so you've got all the staves kind of racked together in a, in a, in a circle. Usually it then goes to be steamed for about 20 minutes, between 10 and 10 and 20 minutes at 95 degrees. They, they steam it, and that's just to soften everything up 
to make it more pliable, then they, they would bend the staves. Or just to put, I'm talking about this. They, they, and you mentioned visiting Cooperages. I think it was it wasn't last year. Obviously, it was a year before. I was up in Speyside, went to the, the Cooperage up there, and that was fantastic. You got the gallery above the 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 main floor in the, in the Cooperage, and watching these guys work. I mean, hats off. They they are working a shift, really putting in some time and effort. Yeah. I- one of the early Glasgow's whiskey festivals, I think Andy came along from Fishers. Right. Um, I'd seen him do it in, around the corner in McSorley's when it was open, and I think he did the same in the festival. Was he, uh, he he did some cask work, and I, I was struck by the physicality of his art. And I, I couldn't describe it in any other way. It was something deeply complicated going on about how to understand the relationship of those of the staves and how to hold them all together. But at the same time, he was doing that with chisels and hammers. I'm sure there's a whole different set of tool names to that, but that's what it looked like to me. It was a remarkable experience and, and very noisy. <laughs> but they make it they make it look easy. Yeah. Just th- throwing these things around and within a minute they've constructed this thing of beauty. It's, I mean, it's really elegant. Crafted, handcrafted. Yeah, I think it's now a short apprenticeship of four years. I was going to, I was going to say, did you know how long it is? But four years. It's been short. It has, it has been longer, but it's now been shortened to four. Brilliant. So where did we get to? Right. So the staves, staves getting bent, and then they draw in the other end, and hoop it. So you've got circles at both end. And then I was reading that the the, the cask shell is heated to about 230 or 260 degrees for 15 minutes, it's allowed to cool down and it, it shrinks back down and it's re-hooped. So you, you get the staves really butted up against one another and it's really uh, watertight. But we were talking in the last episode about the tyloses, about the staves not yeah. leaking at the end. So I'd never thought about this. You drill a bunghole and you're opening up all of those vessels all of those channels within the wood so you drill yeah. your bunghole and you're opening up your a, a cross section of the stave which is going to leak so it has to be cauterized and they, they've got a special tool for doing that so you cauterize it and then you get your cask ends as well interestingly or perhaps just really boringly <laughs> i was reading that bourbon casks the cask ends the staves are all held together with wooden dowels but in huh? Spain, your sherry butts, the cask ends are held together with wire dowels. Oh. That makes no difference whatsoever, I know. But I read it, so now everyone... Uh, you know. I, have to, I have to appreciate your level of <laughs> How about large, fully automated? Right. So I, I was watching some things and it was... There was a, a, a wee cooperage that was doing everything by hand. And then there was a large, there was an American, another American cooperage, fully automated. I mean, everything was automated. Staggeringly, two to two and a half thousand barrels a day. What? How? Where are yeah. they going? Well, they're obviously being used. There's obviously a demand, but that's that's a staggering amount of wood. And did you have a sense of the where the how the majority were made? Is that much more likely to be a mechanised process? And certainly in North America, well, I, well, I suppose maybe what my sense is, 
it's much more likely to be automated in North America, making all these bourbon barrels. And a slight contradiction of what we talked about earlier in the last episode about staves arriving, I imagined then that that was where the cooperage work was in Scotland about rebuilding barrels into hogsheads or the maintenance process. And that that clearly requires, that, that's a different skill set in terms of reworking other wood that you wouldn't imagine would be so easily done by by mechanisms or by machines. That's, but I, that's yeah. the good... That's a good point. That's a good point because the, the Scottish cooperages are not working with the raw components. They're not making it from scratch. But that, but yeah, that's a that's a that's a good point. So, but so it would still mean that I imagine then the first construction of the cask is, if it's in North America, certainly is going to be overwhelmingly mechanical. Is that is that a fair point? Do you think from your from what you picked up? I would I would say so. I don't know how many the. How many cooperages are there? Are there in the states, and how many of them? What's the ratio of fully automated to to smaller kind of boutique craft cooperages, and what are their outputs? What's the likelihood of? Yeah, I think overwhelmingly, it's it's likely to be large scale production methods that are employed. And once you've got to then cauterizing the bunghole, what hmm. what happens then? Is I, I I imagine that comes late in the process, so that you know the integrity of the cask is. It's complete by that point. I think. I think after that, it's just checking it, checking it for leaks, adding water, rinsing out any debris that might have accumulated inside, uh, checking it for leaks, pressure testing it, and then branding it and labeling it. And that's you, Bob's your uncle. But just talking about that 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 huge output, that would then, you know, if there's more, if there's several cooperages putting out. 2,000 barrels a day, then that obviously drives the price of the bourbon barrel right down. They're so available compared with, well, I don't know the numbers for how many how many barrels are produced in Spain a day. No idea. But obviously that then plays into the, the, um, the oft-quoted fact that you can get bourbon barrels a lot cheaper than, than, than Spanish butts. Yeah, as little as tenth of the price. Yeah. The, Which, the well, I shouldn't imagine there's any cooperage in Spain firing out 3,000 butts a day. <laughs> I don't know. I, do, I wouldn't have thought so. I mean, Sherry's not that. Burb, I mean, America's much bigger than Spain. There's more bourbon more bourbon drinkers in, in America than there are Sherry drinkers in Spain, I would have thought. So, yeah, that would kind of stand to reason. And if, as you were saying, it's, a, it's much more likely to be um, a manual artisanal process in Spain compared to the mechanised processes in North America? Quite possibly, yeah. The other kind of factors that would play in, in, in into the, the pricing and the, the relative expense of this, the Spanish casks might be that the staves are longer and thicker. It uses more wood. They're, they're bigger. So a 180 litre barrel might use 30 staves, whereas a 500 litre butt might use 50 staves. So you've got an inherent cost there. But other than that, I couldn't, I didn't find out much more about sherry cask construction. A lot of them don't use steam to to make the wood pliable. They just use heat. Um, I think that'll have, if we go on and talk about the chemistry of, what's going on inside the cask we can talk then about 
the heat treatments and, and how that plays a part in the what chemicals are, are, are at play and available to be at play within the maturation process. But I, I couldn't couldn't find that much more about Spanish cooperages. Maybe we need to go to Spain. How about that? Let's go. Put that on the list. No, I, I, I think that's still remarkable, sure, about that to get that sense of that mass production. Mm. And I kind of understand of just how many casts there must be floating around. And well, it's not it's not that ordinary, or not that often you hear about anyone in Scotch whiskey industry talking about an abundance of casks that they're so readily available. You talk about distillers having to go out their way to establish relationships with cooperages, to establish relationships with other international drinks manufacturer makers, should say, so that they can get a supply of casks. Slightly easier for multinational conglomerates, you know, like Beam Global comes to mind. You know, so they're going to be shipping Jim Beam casks to Lafroig, maybe to Ardmore. You know, that, that that's a, a, an easier international relationship to understand but it's it's maybe uh, and also I suppose other companies have gone out of their way Glenn Mornji comes to mind who the kind of legend was that they owned an Ozark forest so, and I think in, in looking at that a wee bit further they've gone as far as, as supplying we'll make up our bourbon barrels and you can put your bourbon in, in, in them if you like I'm not quite sure which bourbon distiller that would have been but it, that's a much more recognisable process to ones that we are, we're led to believe that happen with the likes of Macallan. Similarly, they have European Spanish oak and they lend their casks to the bodegas. On a very simple understanding is you, you can have them to make your sherry, but there are casks. Yeah. And we'll be bringing them back to Scotland once you're done. <laughs> I suspect that's that some of that those timelines will be determined by the distillery in Scotland because it's an imperative to them compared to the bodegas in Spain or the, the bourbon distillers in, in North America. Although I suppose it's a much shorter process in, in bourbon. You might have only two, three years in bourbon in, in cask before the, the spirits coming out and being bottled. Yeah, there's a couple of things that pop to mind just as you were saying. It's like the tail wagging the dog in a way. That's quite strange to to think about. At one point, if you were running a bodega, perhaps it was a point where you the balance of power shifted. That oh, these guys really want my stuff, but then hang on a minute, I'm I'm now beholden to them. Or the the dynamics at play must be quite quite something to just get a control over. But um, you were talking about is 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 there a shortage of casks, or or can there be a shortage of casks? I I've been wondering lately. How many in the past five years? How many new Scotch whiskey distillers are there? Not to mention Irish distillers. And if you look at the back of the malt whiskey yearbook, there's like so many new distilleries all across Europe and Australia and New Zealand, and not to mention malt whiskey production in the states as well. So, how easy is it if you're Nick Nean or Tora Vague, How easy is it for you to set up those? relationships that you said where you've got you know you can guarantee you've got casks to put your spirit in that would terrify me if i was setting up a distillery and trying to figure that one out yeah 
especially if you're a tiddler, you know, if you're a very small, single, independent distiller producing 50,000 litres of spirit a year. That is dwarfed by some of these international companies, isn't it? And and that then leads to the, in my mind, to the, the question of wood policy. And everybody claims to, we've got a great wood policy. Uh, we only put our stuff in the, in the best wood. So I'd like to know what, what is the best wood? Is it just the best, does, does best wood mean first fill? Is that is that what they mean? We've got, we only put our spirit in the best wood. Okay, what what are the criteria of that? What's what is behind that decision to select wood from that supplier or cast from that cooperage? If all the big boys, like you say, are have built up these relationships, are they hoovering up all of the best casks, and your wee guy is left with the leftovers? Or that's me just being really simplistic about it. But I'd, I'd like to know how how does that work? Yeah, I, I imagine there are, um, word for the night, more variables there, Stuart. <laughs> so I've certainly got my, my own view in the scheme of things. And, and I, I think we picked up that, that in terms of the extractable flavours that are left behind after sherry maturation, there's a lot going on there compared to maybe there are less vigorous compounds and components left when bourbon has done its work but it's not uncommon to read that bourbon casts have a what is described as a truer picture of the spirit you know that it's a more somehow it's a more honest expression now those are value judgments i imagine but at the same time i think there are certain whiskies that i've enjoyed that have a sense that even it's maybe being bottled at 10 or 12 years old that I'm not sure there's been that an awful lot of cask interaction. So it might have been a second, maybe even a third fill cask. Mm-hmm. But the whiskey is so lively and expressive that it hasn't had a lot of, for lack of a better term, aging. You know, that it's still a very vigorous, tasty young whiskey. Conversely, and I'm sure you've read the same along the way, folks saying, well, you've got a. Uh, would you like to taste this 40-year-old whiskey? And there's a number of writers along the way in, in picking up information for us talking tonight. I've said, no, the reason that you can actually drink that whiskey at all is because it was put in a really tired old cask that had really very little in terms of active flavour components to interact with the whiskey, which means that 40 years later, you can actually drink it. Now... I'm sure there's there's truth in both those statements, um, and also a number of the oh, say that again a number of variables in between. <laughs> but as a as a by the by, I think that's a long winded way of saying. I think it depends if you're a distiller and what you're wanting to produce. But I think for sure, if you've not got a lot of clout and you can't draw in decent maybe second fill casks or something like that, then you are going to have to be relying on relatively tired wood. That will mean when you come to bottling your 10-year-old, it might not be quite as magnificent as, as you would hope because it hasn't had those those kind of chances to get access to good flavour interaction with the wood. I think you've hit the nail on, you've hit several nails 
you've hit several nails on the head with that, I think. And I imagine we're, we're going to be able to dive into many more subsections of what you just talked to, talked about when we when we deal with the chemistry in further episodes because I've got a little bit of reading and research and I did was looking at what a refill cask is making available to the whiskies compared with first fill. I've not done that much reading on virgin oak. I need to do a little bit more reading on virgin oak and how yeah I know, I know it's we've both got something to say on that, I think. <clears throat> yes. But I think, you know, one thing that I did pick up was the wood interacts differently with different distillate, with different new make. So depending on what you're putting in that particular cask, it's going to react and interact differently. So I don't know, would it get to the stage where you have a particular type of new make that really sings in a second fill, in a refill cask, and doesn't quite work as well. There's a, an imbalance it, it, that gets created if it's enough that it's wholly matured in a first fill. Is that a thing? I know I've. That, yeah, I, I, I can think of um, as a change of policy in Lafroig a number of years ago that that shifted to first fill as their primary expression for certainly for the single malts and. I think it wouldn't be any great radical or outrageous statement to say I think that the malt has, has got significantly sweeter in that period. And that's specifically about the level, the higher levels of sugars that can be extracted then from the wood as a consequence of it being first fill. Also, what I was struck by, like you're saying, that there are there are particular whiskies that might go well in particular cask. And, also kind of struck by the kind of, the kind of mesmerising process that's going on and I, I, I would be really keen, as, as you've suggested, for us to come back and think about you know, looking at chemistry and the round and just ask, I think we, should, we could probably easily de- devote a whole episode to just the chemistry of what's going on. But you know, the even so really simple things, you know, like the alcohol, but with the breathing process of the cask and not even spoken about that, you know, like the cask expanding and contracting. But maybe we could do that in talking about warehouses and its location. So it will, the, the, the wood is going to move, it's yeah. going to suck things inside, draw things into the wood and then and push them out again, depending on the season. But there's oxidising processes going on where the ethanol is going to oxidise, it's going to create acetal acetaldehyde I think mm-hmm. I'm pronouncing that really badly but then that in itself will oxidise again there's one of the slow slow breathing process and creates acetic acid you know so there's there's clearly fruit notes somewhere in there but that acetic acid then is going to increase pH increase the acidity sorry lower the pH of the of the liquid, which then sets the conditions for another another set of chemical reactions, because they wouldn't those reactions wouldn't happen at a different pH you know, at a different pH level. Yeah, so what you've got is this whole set of reactions that are just kind of laying out this these whole possibilities for the the evolution of flavour, and well, 
I chased that for a few nights in a row, and I, I'm still not sure I've even got the, ba- <laughs> the basic framework. It's mesmerising. That's brilliant. I think you, you put it really well. I think you 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 got the the flow of it. The here's these different combinations of reactions and interactions, and one can't happen without the the previous one happening. That's brilliant. But I know you you um we were talking previously. And just to change the subject ever so slightly, you had done some great digging around the whole charring toasting thing. Yeah. Um, so I can remember way back, it was on one of the one of the whiskey courses that, that you and I were on. I, I think it was really, really early days. It might have been... Were you the one up in the the college building printing? When would that be? Was that yeah. was that Oof. early two thousands? Yeah, maybe two thousand five max. Right. So maybe maybe it's between there and ten. And I, I was I was really I wasn't confused. All right, I was confused. I didn't know what was what. I, did, I was asking, what's the difference between charring and toasting, or or between toasting and charring? I I, I imagine that toasting is maybe less severe than charring i know a little bit more now but i know that you've done you've done a lot of yeah well, digging around well and you've found some interesting stuff yeah thanks thanks for asking that's a nice setup there <laughs> no pressure and I, but, but i think you're you're right about the well it's quite often presented the the treatment of the wood with heat or flame it's kind of quite often presented in a continuum but there are there are two different processes the continuum being the darkness and penetration in terms of how it affects the layers of the wood on the inside of the cask but there is a a distinct difference because toasting not under a grill or anything like that no it's much more likely the cask would go in to a, a large oven about 200 degrees C around about 30 minutes and that well, you know, you would recognise the browning of the inside of the the staves from that process. But again, compared to charring, which is the direct application of flame to the wood for a much shorter period, it might only be 30 to 45 seconds. Right. Um, but it's obviously a far more aggressive and invasive process. But toasting, you wouldn't see any obvious damage to the structure of the actual wood itself, it would just be slightly darker, darkened in colour. Mm-hmm. But that's not, but it still had the processes still acted on the polymers in the wood, on the cellulose structure. So it's degraded those polymers. And again, the reason you would be toasting or treating in any way in this way is to allow the release of the compounds in the wood. So again. The liquid that's going in, be that sherry or or whiskey, you begin to get access to the kind of wood sugars that have been caramelised in the process, and and also offers up some colour as well, and then uh, it does remove some of those more undesirable compounds. So you're already looking at the cask has gone through a fairly rigorous experience of being put into shape, but another little bit of extra treatment on top of that is going to allow, it's going to produce those kind of aromatic aldehydes and those are the ones that are going to oxidise as a spirit 
develops, like we were mentioning earlier on about how you get that phased evolution. And again, it's going to act on the lignin, which is where the vanillins and the van vanillic acids come from. Yeah. Conversely, though, char is a bit more aggressive, but it is, again, by degree. So you've got kind of like three levels of toasting, again, you know, darker, getting gradually darker, and char goes from you know, where the, the surface is just beginning to break up through, through to level four, which has a num number of names. Maybe I think the char is one, two, three, and craft. Or um, as it was made more legendary by Art Beg, it's called alligator because the, the surface of the wood has been so broken up that it looks like reptilian skin. Hey, wow. But again, the process is, the objective is the same in terms of opening up that membrane of the wood and letting the, sp the spirit then get access to those wood flavours, and that, which again get into react with the alcohol or the spirit. And to some degree, that char the charcoal that's been created kind of filters out some of those uh, more uglier flavours uh, within, within the spirit. So I was reading that different cooper cooperages have different output and i don't just mean the numbers of casks i mean if you buy a cask from cooperage a they're, they're going to have their own in-house protocols and the way that they do things in that cooperage it's going to be different to cooperage b so i'm wondering is that scale of toasting levels and charring levels is that is that a kind of industry standard do we know that that your alligator char is always going to be 45 seconds at 200 degrees for example across the board or 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 is an alligator char from cooperage a slightly different to an alligator char from cooperage b i, I just oh, wonder how much how much of a, a level industry standard is there do we know yeah, that's a good question. I didn't pick up anywhere that there wasn't a general understanding. That if, if you're asking for heavy char, you know, the craft distillery level or alligator level, then that's what you're going to get. You're going to get this ferociously attacked wood. Mm -hmm. um, and th there is a kind of gradation, almost like your paint colour chart when, you go, when, when you're going into buy your paint to redecorate your house. That, 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 that gradation of colour and bite into the wood is, is well, be interesting if it's not, but there was nothing to suggest that it's not broadly standard as, as right. an expectation. And I also, I wonder if, you know, Alligator has such a legend that really, I wonder how many distillers actually ask for Alligator. It just becomes a kind of legend in its own lunchtime because it's become slightly peculiar, you know? Or, or, maybe, I I or maybe everyone was using it already <laughs> and then, and then Ardbeg slapped it on the bottle, and now it's a thing. Yeah, yeah, they they claimed it, and <laughs> apparently the charring process, you know, it's not new. Uh, you know, kind of almost around about the seventeenth century, realizing that you know, that application of heat would sterilize the cask. So again, another bit of a, a happy accident where realizing that after the fact that oh, hey, the spirit that's been in there tastes better. Yeah. After it's been charred a bit. Are we getting to that time, Stuart? That that was that was a wee timer went off there. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
time's whizzing by. So d- maybe just to just to wrap it up a wee bit, just to quickly tie things up. Could could we just have a wee rummage around cask regeneration? Yeah, go on. Well, I had a question for you actually. All right. As because um, I, I, it occurred to me, I spend so much time on these getting these nice gradations and stuff like that of and my paint chart. I wondered if you could have such a thing as a toasted and charred cask because they're such. Although they're presented to us as kind of on this continuum, but they're two very different processes. So. Right, right. Well, I, the, I, I, that was a question I didn't really have an answer for. That's in my mind. See, harken back to that question that I was asking: What's the difference between char- toast, toasted and charred? Prior to having a conversation with you about it and 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 seeing that continuum, in my mind there were. They were kind of two separate things, and oh. I suppose they are. Talk, the way that you're talking about them as well, but it's kind of like uh, what is light? It's a particle and it's a ray. These char and toasting is, are different things, but they're the same thing. Does that? Uh, that I, I don't know if I'm any clearer in my mind. Yeah, or oh, but actually, maybe there's a clue because you were talking about regenerating and recharging casks. So. Mm-hmm. It would suggest. Sorry, to interrupt, but just to to answer your question in the way that I would that answers your question rather than <laughs> not answer your question. Um, Jim Swan, I think it was Jim Swan, was responsible for the evolution or the introduction of the STR casks, the mm. shaved, toasted, and recharred. So that then would suggest that you can have a cask that's toasted and charred. Mm. But that still, in my mind, doesn't really compute because if you're toasting it and then you're charring it, how do those two things work in combination? No idea, but it's a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying, yes, but how? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's kind of like answering a question with a question. I hate doing that, but that's kind of what I've just done. There's stuff you were mentioning recharring as well, or, or, or like is that in the context of that? Is that what you meant about what Jim Swan had talking about about these? Is it STR? Cast? STR, yeah, yeah. Um, and I've had pretty good experiences with STR casked whiskey. The, the, I think the first one I had was a Cotswold, uh, one of their early releases, and I, I was really impressed with that. I thought that was great. Um, I know Kilholman um, have done it as well, have they not? Yeah, uh, quite recently. I think maybe last year they had an STR. And am I right in thinking, though, that that, so that, that involves... Or, or is STR different from rejuvenation? Are they different processes then? I, th- I think or, the shaving is one aspect of rejuvenation, as would be shaving, then toasting, or as would be another kind of variation on a theme would be shaving, toasting, and rechar. There's a notion that you can just scrape off the char and then reburn. Well, there's 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 tons of info out there about what you're gonna get and what you're not gonna get from an initial char from a new oak barrel compared with what you're gonna get from a barrel that's then been rejuvenated. I think you, there's 
there seems to be hard and fast um, scientific evidence that certain things are available in a first in a in a, in a new newly charred cask. Now, whether that then translates to first fill scotch, I'm presuming it does. And then if you rechar it, things are less available. Anyway, I was just wanting to briefly before, but if we go on to the chemistry in the, in the next episode and, and and all of that entails, it might just be nice to, to to wrap up at the moment. We've done we've we've looked at the cast construction. We've looked at uh, the the heat dream, heat treatment that you you talked us through, and then you might come across rejuvenated casks. So what would that mean? If you're reusing a cask and you've not regenerated it, if you're you know looking for a second fill or a third fill, what's happening there is you have a depletion in the extractives that are available. So that's why you were saying earlier on, uh, a 40 year old whiskey from a second or third fill cask is going to operate in perhaps a, a nicer way. It's going to the end product's going to be a nicer experience than a 40 year old from a first fill cask because it's going to be overblown with wood pretty much what you're going to taste is you're just going to taste really heavy wood aromas so in terms of the regeneration of the cask what they're doing is they're decharring it they're taking all of that all your alligator char they're ta- pairing that right back from what i could ascertain that would be a process of stripping it off by means of a rotating brush mm. so that would just scour the inside of the cask and take all of that char off. Then when you're talking about recharring it, what you're doing is you're making available from deeper within the stave lignans and other compounds that are now being made available by stripping back that char and going deeper into the wood. You're, You're activating those elements and compounds that are found deeper within the wood and which weren't previously available to the contents of the cask. Mm. But there are some elements that are not kind of regenerated by this process. So your oak lactones, I think, have been found to not be as present in rejuvenated casks, and your tannins are not as present either. Um, So your, your regenerated casks offer a different balance of compounds flavor compounds and you know aroma compounds they've got a different ratio that's then going to interact and react differently with the spirit that's in the cask but talking about jim swan and his str other rather than using the rotating brush what jim swan i think started doing was shaving the the inside of the cask and that allowed access to deeper layers of the wood and therefore access to, to those constituents of new wood, i.e. oak lactones and tannins. So that's what your shaved, toasted, recharred uh-huh. cask has given you. It's given you more oak lactones and given you access to the, to the tannins. And when, when a cask is toasted as well as being shaved, they might be removing as much as eight millimetres of old wood. And that's been found to restore up to 85% of activity so you're you're really pushing the what this cask is able to give you you're really milking it so i think that might be the reason why the strs are bringing a lot to the whiskey 
Yeah. And presumably then they wouldn't go then be filled with bourbon or sherry. They would that was whiskey that would go into those STR casts. Is that right? I think so. I've only ever seen STR whiskies. Well, bourbon has to go into a new cast, doesn't it? So it can. Yeah. So they will yeah. Well, there you go. It does, the STR does, it's a hybrid that sits out with all of those ranges. That's cool. Mm. Constant developments, isn't it? Constant moving on. Yeah. yeah. So much happening again. Again, every step of the way, there's more, there's just tons to get your head around. Well, well it's just occurred to me, actually, we're, we're, we're probably in extra time. So yeah, we're in, we're in trying- injury time. Should we try and wrap up the cask thing? Because I've I've got a, a nice wee detail here on uh, sizes. Oh yeah, we didn't do that, right? Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, and, right. And that, yeah. that will maybe tie things up. Uh, oh, okay, we'll have a go. So, needs to say, casks are it's an organic thing. So it, it, this isn't exact, but over a long period of time, they've been kind of some names have become kind of slightly standardised around sizes of casks. So I've got a fair list here, so we'll see how we how we get on. And, and one, one thing, a wee bit about quarter casks that might be worth mentioning. Mm-hmm. But, so, I mean, it goes from as small as four litres can be called a barrack, to the other end, the, you know, the largest cask you could have for maturing Scotch whisky would be a gorda, but maybe some, somewhere between Six and seven hundred liters, and that's that large cast is probably going to be made from American oak, and more likely that would be used for marrying of the spirit before it was bottled. Oh, really? Yeah, that, that's what was suggested. Yeah, all right. And that yeah. would be, did you say um, American oak? But yeah, I've only ever seen gordas described as being sherry gordas. Oh, yeah, you, you go, you're coming to that. Sorry, I'm, 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 I'm getting ahead of you. Sorry. Yeah, but uh, that that seems to be the the case because well then remember we when we we were trying to contrast the qualities of U.S. oak and European oak, we had to contain ourselves to saying right okay, for the purposes of our argument here, only American stuff goes into American oak and only so clearly it's there have been changes along the way, but some. Some I recognised, some I didn't know along the way. A mini pin and a pin, respectively, 10 and a quarter litres and 20 and a half litres. A mini pin and a pin? Never heard of it. Is that just P-I-N? Yeah, mini P-I-N, yeah. Wow. An, an octave, which is maybe one we'd be more familiar with, Duncan Taylor, do a lot of octave stuff. Yeah. 22 and a half litres. It's tiny, isn't it? Really, yeah. in, in the scheme of things. So then you get Anchor Firkin, which I would more associate with in a beer production. Mm-hmm. Thing. That's that's two pins. Is it really? And this is about 40 litres, 41. But <clears throat> what you're getting is this beautiful mishmash of, you know, because I'm describing these in metric, but the, the terms have seemed so imperial. In yeah. our old, old traditional style, don't we? A quarter cask, around about 50 litres, or surprise, surprise, a, co- a quarter of a US barrel, which is mm. going to come out 200. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. And, and I'm, I'm at a, mixed up here. I've got an octave in twice, 22 and a half litres, and 60. So an octave is a quarter of a hogshead. 
is it? I don't know. A Rundlet at 68. I killed a kin at 82, and that was a... That was a line from... A Springbank Distillery put out Springbank, Longrow and Hazelburn in Rundlets and Kildickens. Yeah. American Standard Barrel, 180 to 200 mm-hmm. litres in US Oak, of course. A Hogshead, 225 to 250, and that's a repurposed US barrel. Five barrels makes four Hogsheads. A Barrique, but that's... A Bordeaux Barrique would be only be around about 225 litres, and... Surprise, surprise, that would be mostly used in the wine industry in Bordeaux, but doesn't ha- it could be European or American oak. Um, a cognac barrique is most likely to be European oak, and it, it, it's like a, a fatter hogshead, so it's, mu- it's wider at the minute, much more like a, 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 a sherry butt that you would recognise, but again, it's more likely to be French or other European oak, but specifically for cognac. Sherry but up there at 475 to 500 litres. European oak, most often for sherry, might have been seasoned with a sherry-type beverage, but I think we'll cover some of that when we come to past consents and seasoning. A dump dump punching, which is about 545 litres, and is for importing sherry in bulk so wouldn't be used anymore since about 2005 I think sherry has to be bottled in Spain a machine punching again around about the same 500 litres but this time American oak and most often for rum but not uncommon to get sherry or American sherry port pipe up there 500 to 650 litres Usually European oak, and I think what I, I, I struck by the shape is different of a port pipe. It's much longer than a than a sherry butt. You know, sherry butts tend to be fat and squat. Punchings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, a port pipe. Surprise, surprise! If it's pipe shaped, will be by comparison a bit longer. A Madeira drum, six hundred and fifty liters. Again, European oak, um, short, fat, and dumpy because it's going to be extra strong. And if I'm thinking right, I think Madeira really, it, that's designed then for Madeira to be transported on ships because it was felt that good Madeira only comes from having been transported around, uh, certainly historically, maybe not oh, so much wow. now. Because it's uh, spent, and it, it would be transported by sail, not by powered transport, yeah, it's, and it's therefore spending more time in the cask. Yeah, and, and oxidises in the process. Yeah. And... Um, I'm sure somewhere in the deep recesses of my often wandered mind, you need those artisanal Madeiras and the best ones are ones that have crossed the equator twice. (laughs) Uh, I'll be really interested if that's a true fact, but it's working for me. And then we come back up to the Gorda, which is like that 700 litre. It's the biggest you could possibly have Mm. in terms of maturation. And is more like, more likely to be about leaving for a short period of time for for the the, the spirit to marry for marrying right <clears throat> and of course like we've talked about all in terms of the variables of course the issue here about cast size is about the volume to surface area so the smaller a smaller cask is going to have a more active inter- engagement with the wood yeah it's going to extract more of the components <clears throat> oxidisation is going to be greater. 
the loss is going to be greater because again you're going to have a higher angel share, but it's going to it's going to relatively be virtue of having more surface area to the volume of the spirit. It's going to have more flavour congeners and extraction to to work with. So and it generally is seen to kind of make the smaller the cast seems to produce a, a sweeter spirit. And a, a few years ago, I had good fortune a taste and to meet with uh, Robert Hicks, who's the master distiller at the time for, it would have been Beam Global. So oh. he, I think he'd originally worked for Allied, uh, but in the early 2000s, he had done some experimenting in all of their distilleries as part of the Allied group with quarter casks. So that's 50 litre casks. So I think he would have had access to Glendronach, Glen, at the time, Glen Cadam, Glen Burgay, Scapa, Milton Duff, Imperial, Tormoor, Pulteney, Balblair, and Inverleven, as well as Laphroaig and Ardmore. Wow, so, that's, uh, that's, a good, that's a good hand of cards you've got right there, isn't it? Yeah, uh, and I think a, a wee reminder of how you know, things move about. Those, those disorders are all under hugely different ownership now. But it speaks to just how big Allied were a player in, in back in the day. Mm. But I remember him saying that for all that experimenting, I mean, I, he, you know, he obviously wouldn't say if he tried with every one of those distilleries whiskies, but for him, the only two that, that were really successful were uh, Laphroaig and Ardmore. Interestingly, the peaty ones, so maybe they interact with the sweetness of that wood in a different way. Don't know. But, and of course, Laphroaig subsequently did a, a quarter cask expression. And if I'm right in remembering, round about that time, Ardmore was then bottled uh, as a proprietary bottling for one of the first times. But I think it came as a no-age statement, but quite high significant, if not all of it, had been matured in quarter casks. Wow. So it kind of rolls off the tongue now, you know, all the Lafroy quarter casks, but mm-hmm. it, clearly a lot of effort had gone into... And when were you speaking to him? When was that? Uh, oh, when when we, we, the first homecoming? That was 2006, maybe? Yeah, I went. I, I visited up, in, up to Ardmore Distillery. And we went down for the day, and we were very well looked after. And I think that there was a tasting after the tour at what was Leith, is it Leith Hall, Leith House, just down the road a wee bit. It was a a big day. That sounds like a spectacularly pertinent point to to wrap things up for this evening. Indeed, hard work there, Stuart. A lot of work put in. Well done. Enjoyable work. Very enjoyable, oh, I, and I think it's I think it's great that we uh, we're looking at the same subject, and you're coming up with stuff that I missed, and I'm coming up with stuff that you didn't pick up on, and yeah, I think that's it's a benefit. Nice to get that more rounded view, isn't it? I think that's a benefit of doing this rather than just doing it on your own in one person. You know, we've got the the added benefit of uh, of asking each other questions that I certainly can't answer. <laughs> Yeah, and it was a way of sharing the angst of, geez, this is a huge subject. Yeah. It's great. But then again, you know, I think you were, I think you mentioned something along the lines of way back at the start, we're, we're not here to uh, kill the thing we love and, uh, and and puncture any 
sense of romance. And I, don't, I really don't think we've done that. All, uh, for me, all it's heightened the romance and it's it's left everything intact with a, a sense of wonder and gratitude. So, shall we drink to who we, we drank to the Coopers last time? Who are we drinking to now? The Coopers again. <laughs> Yeah, Coopers again. Why not? They've they kept didn't... us going for two episodes. They're worth a second round. <laughs> to the Coopers. Here's to you. All the best. Cheers, Stuart. Nice Here's one. to you. I'll see you soon. You have good health. <laughs>